you will turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, I will be reading verses 15 through 28. The abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no, and never will be. And if, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, it's been so good already to be in your house, so rich, so full to be still and know that you're God, um, to, um, to consider the um, way in which we would apply the gospel and to live out uh, your um, heart to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, to think now about the, the end of the age and the imminency of your return and then how we ought to live. God, give us a sober mind today. I pray you would just, just wake us up to the entanglements of life and how easy it is to just go through every day, every week, every month, and then a lifetime, and not, not living with the citizenship in heaven that is really ours in view. So God, I pray that you would... Fill this room now with the presence of your spirit. Fill worship too. Lord, as this message is heard um, in weeks to come and over the internet, that you would just birth people into your kingdom through this text. Um, I pray this to the king of ages, the immortal, invisible, the only God to whom belongs glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. So last week... We began a five-week series called The End is Near, and my hope through our journey in Matthew 24 is to help you to really hear Jesus' heart and the message that is implicit within these two chapters. This this section of Scripture is important not just because of Jesus' teaching about the end times, it's It's important also because it helps us to know how to live in Jesus' absence. And that's that's really important, that you, you keep that particular target in view. Hopefully you'll remember this quote from last week. It says, they 
mean the disciples, are concerned about when he will renew his presence with them, and he is concerned about how they will live in his absence. See, that's, that's the distinction that we need to be sure that we get into our minds and hearts, that at the end of the day, Matthew 24 and 25 is really a call to spiritual watchfulness and perseverance. All throughout these two chapters are statements where Jesus urges his followers to be on guard, to, to persevere, to wake up, to, to, to realize that, that uh, he's really coming back. For instance, Matthew 24, 4, he says, See that no one leads you astray. He's warning them. In Matthew 24, 4, he also says, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 24:42. Therefore, stay awake. Do, you do not know on what day the Lord is coming. And 25:13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And my heart for you is that you would see the importance of this watchfulness, this spiritual readiness, and that you would avoid two errors that we talked about last week, or two ditches on either side of this issue. On the one hand would be this lackadaisical attitude where you just don't even care about um, whether or not Jesus is coming again. You just can't wait to get through Sunday so you can sit down this afternoon and watch football. And, and your life is, is basically lived in 24-hour increments of whatever you can do to make yourself happy. And so you just, you're excited to go to bed, you moan when you get up, and the reality is you just don't even think that you're one day closer to Christ's return. The second ditch, so last days it will be one, chronological would be the other, where you, you read this book, particularly Matthew 24 to 25 or the book of Revelation, as a handbook on future events. And you're so focused on timelines and charts and, and diagrams and, and various symbols and things of that sort that, that you, you miss the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That, that you're more fascinated, if you will, with, with what the timeline is than you are with the beautiful king who's going to return. Granted, there is a chronology here, but that's not the main focus. And so understanding this overarching theme of spiritual readiness helps us to stay on track, especially when we're navigating some some tricky questions in the text. And there's some really tricky questions in this text, as you will see this morning. So let's start again from a big-picture perspective. This is called the Olivet Discourse. It's a discourse that Jesus gave when he was on the Mount of Olives, and it's his final teaching to his disciples. He gave it to them because they were enamored with the temple, and they said, Lord, look at the beauty of the temple. And Jesus said, I tell you that these stones, all of them will be overturned, and not one will be left on top of another. And then he tries to reorient their perspective, and that's what he talks about in this Olivet Discourse. But it's important when you study the Olivet Discourse to begin with this thought, and that is, so are the events in 24 and 25 intended to all be fulfilled in the lifetime of the disciples? Are none of them to be fulfilled during their lifetime? Or are some of them or part of them to be fulfilled? That's a very critical question because your answer to that question informs what you see in the text and what you see elsewhere. And so let me just give you an overview of a couple different views on this. The first would be seeing it as a past fulfillment or sometimes called the preterist view. In this view, someone would see all or most of the events taking place in Matthew 24 in particular, as being fulfilled during the lifetime of Jesus, or rather, excuse me, the lifetime of the disciples. In particular, they would see verses 1 to 35 as describing the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And, and see that that text, 1 to 35, is limited to that particular 
fulfillment. And then they would see verses 36, chapter 24 through 25, 46 as referring to the second coming of Jesus. However, the, the challenge with this from, from my perspective is that it has to force cosmic signs like the sun will be darkened, stars will fall from heaven into the lifetime of the disciples and therefore developing an overly allegorical interpretation for something that just seems really plain. And so that feels real forced to me, like something's really pressing to make that fit. So the second view is to see it as all future fulfillment, where everything in this passage from really the beginning of Jesus' dialogue in the Olivet Discourse to the very end is all about predictions that are going to happen um, in the future. The challenge with this is that Jesus seems to be clearly speaking to his disciples. And if he wanted to talk about things in the future, he could have talked in that way. And, and further, 2434 clearly says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So that feels equally as forced to say it's all future. So if it's not all past and it's not all future, what are we left with? Well, in my mind, what's happening here is a third type of dynamic, which is a past-future fulfillment, meaning there's a blending of both. Now, this makes things a little more complicated, but I actually think it solves a number of challenges. It's to see the passage as potentially fulfilled during the lifetime of the disciples, but with implications or typology or double fulfillment of things that are yet to come in the future. In other words, the disciples could have things in their lifetime that fit very much of what Jesus is talking about and at the same time be harbingers of things that will come in the future. As I said last week, Matthew loves this kind of stuff because in um, Isaiah 7 it talks about this child that will be born, which was born, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And Matthew, looking back on that event in history, pulls it now and says this is what the fulfillment of Christ and his birth. He is the, the virgin-conceiving, uh, virgin-conceived child who's called God with us. So, in my view, Jesus could be very well talking to his disciples about real events that will happen in their lifetime, and yet see this as a continuum of fulfillment. And that's an important phrase, that will be fulfilled even yet in the future. So, with that overview, let me just walk you through kind of the outline of how I see this passage. And this is, this is technical, but it's important stuff. Verse 1 and 2, it's actually fairly easy, and that is the disciples' comment on the temple, and Jesus then shocks them. I can imagine whoever said, wow, look at the temple, felt really bad that he said that, because Jesus just unloads with this, it's going to be terrible and awful, and it's going to be destroyed, and probably thought, boy, don't ask him about that ever again. So, um, verses 1 and 2, that's that's the content there. And then verses 3 to 14, the disciples ask some end times questions about... um, uh, what will the end of the age be like? What will be the sign of your coming? And then what Jesus does here, and this is another important piece, is that he tells them in verses 3 to 14 about the overall environment that will characterize life when he is gone. Meaning, they're going to experience some of these things in their lifetime, and yet, this is the characteristic of all believers from the ascension of Christ to the second advent, his second coming. So this passage, in my view, 3 to 14, can't be just simply localized to their experience, but certainly was their experience, as will be the experience of many believers throughout the millennium of church history. Then verses 15 to 28 is a very specific prediction about localized and intensified suffering, which indeed did happen in 66 to 70 A.D. under the Roman occupation uh, and really assault of the city of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. However, I see this as a model 
even a prediction of what will happen even in the future in the Great Tribulation. And I'll show you this further when we talk about the abomination of desolations. In other words, there's a near-term of fulfillment that has a long-term fulfillment implication, or a model, a type, if you will. And then verses 29 to 31 are a description of the second coming of Jesus, where he comes in his second advent. And then finally, verses 32 to 35 is further explanation of what life is like in Jesus' absence. Now, if there's any challenge, it's really in verses 32 to 35, because I draw a line from 32 to 35 all the way back to verses 3 to 14. So I link what Jesus is saying go around the second of coming, coming of Jesus coming back to what he says that these things will be fulfilled in your lifetime, meaning what he says in verses 3 to 14. Now, listen, every view, whether it's past, uh, future, or or past future, as, as I have, have their weaknesses um, and some significant weaknesses, and even mine does. I just think my view has less weaknesses than the other two, is what it comes down to. And, and honestly, folks, this is a really challenging passage. As I said to you last week, if you think you've got this thing like lock and step and you know exactly what's going on here, yeah, you're pretty well wrong. So that's, it's a really, really tough passage. All of this intricate interpretive detail is important because it affects how you handle this passage. And again, now pulling back, let me remind you that the overall tone of this passage is not about the intricate detail, but again, spiritual watchfulness and readiness. And I don't want you to lose that point as we get into the details. So let's begin in verse 15. Jesus talks about something here called the abomination of desolation. Look what he says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So he's got this parenthetical statement about something called the abomination of desolation. And what Jesus does is he uses this, this moment, this abomination of desolation, whatever that is. I'll explain that in a moment. But he uses that as an indicator that suffering of an immense scale will be around that event. He, he, he sees that central to this season of suffering, this intensified hardship, this, this difficult moment, will be this event called the abomination of desolation. Now, that phrase, abomination of desolation, is used in other places in the Bible. And essentially, it describes an event where someone comes and desecrates the temple, and that event of the desecration of the temple forebodes or portends future coming destruction of maybe even the entire nation of Israel. Look at um, Daniel 9 here on the screen. It says, the end will come like a flood. This is Daniel uses this um, phrase for the first time in Daniel 9. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. What in the world is going on here? Well, let me try and simplify it for you. It's this. The temple was the the representation of both God's presence and the identity of the Jewish people. So if you were a foreign invader and you came to Jerusalem, you were going to make a beeline for the temple. 
Why? Because if you destroyed the temple or defiled the temple or walked into the temple of this powerful, singular God, in the midst of all of the polytheism of their culture, Israel said, no, the Lord our God is a one. He's the creator. And you walk into the temple of the holy God of the universe and you're able to desecrate that temple. Guess what you've just done? You've made a political and a military statement. You have told the Jewish people you are under my thumb. And when you desecrate the temple, you desecrate the people. Because that temple was so connected to their identity. And so what the abomination of desolation is, is a foreign invader who comes, according to Daniel, stops the sacrificial system, stops sacrifices, stops offerings in Jerusalem, and then desecrates the temple with some act of defilement. Now, throughout the history of Israel, there have been numerous events that could fit this description. And it just makes sense that there would be multiple because whenever a a ruler is going to come and try and conquer Israel, they're going to make a beeline for the temple. great example would be Antiochus Epiphanes, a ruler of the Seleucid Empire who famously invaded Jerusalem in 167 B.C. He killed 80,000 Jews, outlawed Judaism as a religion, rededicated the temple to Zeus, and then in an audacious move took a pig into the temple and sacrificed it on the altar. That is like spitting in the face of Judaism. And it was not just something he did religiously. He did it to oppress, to mock, and to, and to rebuke the nation of Israel from their attempts to exert their authority over him. It was meant to be a morale killer. Another example would be when Rome conquered the Hasmonean kingdom. Um, years later, Jews took over. 63 B.C., Rome conquered um, uh, the nation of Israel, and Pompey, the military ruler, entered by himself into the Holy of Holies. Can you imagine this? Walks into the Holy of Holies. It, it'd be like somebody saying, oh yeah, you're a Christian? Watch this. And they curse God to see what's going to happen to him. And the effect of Pompey walking into the Holy of Holies is in effect to say, see your God's nothing. Nothing. I, Pompey, pierce the veil between the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. Or um, the Zealots, um, a religious Jewish group, when the um, city of Jerusalem was under siege with Rome all around it from 66 to 70, the, the Zealots misused the temple. They murdered the rightful high priest. They set up a false high priest and in so doing desecrated the temple. Or you could take um, Titus's invasion of Israel in 70 A.D., where he held siege of the nation for 66 to 70 A.D., and then came in and not only defiled the temple, but completely obliterated it, burnt it to the ground, and made sure that every stone was unturned. And what's only left now is just the wall of the, the city of Jerusalem, where Jews now wail at that wall. Finally, if I understand the Bible correctly, all of these things represent a coming and future sacrilege, Uh, an ultimate affront demonstrated by the Antichrist as described in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 4. 
the, the challenge here is that you can't just locate the abomination of desolation on one event. It, it seems to me that there is this perpetual defilement and destruction of Jerusalem, and particularly the temple, when God's judgment comes by virtue of a foreign ruler, and Jesus is telling them to look for a historically familiar symbol. Look for a historically familiar event. And that's, I think, why why... Matthew says, let the reader understand why he records that. So to limit the meaning to just the fall of Jerusalem, of the abomination of desolations, or to limit it just to future events doesn't seem to work. So therefore, the point of all of this is for the disciples to understand that there are similar events that have happened in the past, similar events that are going to happen in their lifetime, and the result will be is that they can understand and know that this defilement is a part of the overall suffering and hardship of the age. However, I think that there's something yet that's to come. I think it can't be just limited to 70 A.D. Let me show you why. Take your Bible and go to 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 1. There's 10 verses here and then Revelation 11. Those are two texts that I think indicate that there's something coming in the future. 2 Thessalonians 2 one says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So it seems as though... Paul is talking here about a future coming event. Verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by his appearance of his coming, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So that, that seems to indicate something future that's coming. Here's another reason. Revelation 11, it seems as though John's vision includes probably a literally rebuilt temple. He says, Revelation 11:1. 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So, therefore, to me, it seems that the passage and the description of the abomination of desolation should be seen as an event predicted in Matthew, but could have multiple fulfillments, including an important fulfillment and an intensified fulfillment in the future. Now, let's move on to the rest of the passage. Because Jesus now gives a series of warnings and also some promises, and he calls the disciples, in light of this kind of technical material, he calls them to... Um, a spirit of watchfulness and endurance. And what he does is he, ins- he describes the environment 
of these difficult days. These days that will begin in his ascension, continue all the way to his second advent, and during particular moments will be very intense and even more significant. So the first thing we see here is, there's, there's five, the first is there will be a sense of urgency. Look at verse 16. It says, then those, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. So the idea is that there's this, this coming judgment, this coming difficulty, this coming hardship that creates the need to flee. Not unlike in our own day when a, um, a faction within a nation begins warring or a natural disaster takes place, there's often a significant refugee problem as people try and flee to get out of harm's way. In fact, a parallel account in Luke 21 helps to provide some interesting color on this. Listen to what Luke says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out of the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So Jesus tells his disciples, and I think us, that these will be days with a high level of urgency. Now, Secondly, we find in verses 19 through 21 that the suffering of this moment will be great. Jesus makes a number of statements about the depth of difficulty, even identifying three or four things that you ought to pray that aren't true about your life and your experience during this moment. Verse 19 says, How dreadful it will be in those days for those for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray, verse 20, that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. And so he says, this is going to be so bad and difficult, you ought to just pray that you're not pregnant. You ought to pray that you're not having small children. You ought to pray that it's not winter, and you ought to hope that it's not Sabbath. The Sabbath thing could be because the, 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 the travel would be difficult, or it could be that traveling on the Sabbath would identify that you're fleeing, like a, like a, a curfew, because if you're traveling on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to be, would identify you'd be easy targets for the, the enemy. Regardless, the point of all this is Jesus says, pray that these things aren't happening when suffering comes, because it's going to be really difficult. Verse 21, Jesus then provides a summary of the depth of hardship, which I think is ultimately fulfilled in the great tribulation or the unique tribulation, which is a season of unparalleled suffering. Verse 21, it says, For then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world and no and never will be. So this then raises a question about the rapture of the church, uh, believers going through tribulation or not, and how that coincides with the second coming and everything else. And let me just say this. That issue is beyond the scope of this text. And um, therefore, I'm not going to cover it. So <laughs> I, I'm committed to expositional preaching, and there's nothing that it says about it in the passage. And so therefore, I, I just I can't because it's not in there. So we'll move on, shall we? Okay, so good. The reality is, is that either are plausible, and you can read a footnote of kind of where I've, where I lean, and uh, you can read that later. But the point is that there's this environment that is great in its suffering and a sense of urgency that takes place. Here's third. The third is a great promise, friends. It is that God will protect His own. Look at verse 22. 
It says, and if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Here's this. This is so helpful. It is that the suffering will be severe, but listen, but it will not be without divine limits. Get this. Even the most difficult moment in human history, when it feels as though all hell is breaking loose, when it seems that life is so bad, such that the complete extinction of the human race is actually within the realm of possibility, the kind of hardship that is beyond any other in comparison, God, in His sovereign purposes, says, here are the boundaries of hardship. The reason that that is so important and so essential for you to know is the same God who sets the boundaries in a mega context is the same God who sets the boundaries of hardship and suffering in your micro context. So if 2011 involves a a season of difficulty and hardship of your life and you wonder what in the world is going on, you never need to wonder who in the world is in control. In fact, I would argue that's one of the reasons why Matthew uses the word elect. A word, he could have said follower, he could have said disciples, he could have said anything. But he chose the word elect. Why? Because this is a word that points to God's sovereignty, which undergirds everything, including salvation. He uses this word to describe the followers of Jesus. It means that undergirding everything in life is a sovereign God who controls all events. That means that, so did you choose to receive Christ? Absolutely you did. But did you do it alone? No way. And when you go through suffering and hardship, when you experience difficulties in life, the beautiful hope of God's sovereignty is that when you go through the midst of the darkest moment of your life, yes, you make decisions, but you don't make them alone or by your own power. If you did, you would crush under the weight of hardship. And the hope in the midst of suffering is this, that God in His sovereign purposes has my back. He won't let me go. He will hold me and help me. And no matter what comes, there is a divine sovereign power, albeit mysterious, cooperating along with my decisions that I make. But God is sovereignly taking all of my life and empowering me to continue to follow Him. How beautiful to consider that in the darkest of all human experiences, God is protecting His own. You see, just because God's control over all events, even hardships, is mysterious, doesn't negate its reality and its comfort. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that you are what? With me. So God will protect His own. That's what Jesus is saying. Fourth, He calls here for us not to be naive. The next thing Jesus says is so similar to what he's previously said about false teachers in 10 through 11. And obviously it's important because he raises it again. Verse 25, he says, See, I have told you beforehand. So he's warning them in advance, don't be naive. Don't be foolish. Be discerning. Be wise. Understand the scriptures. And he tells them that there's, there's a number of possibilities of what's going to happen during this, this, this season. Verse 23, it says, For if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead, to, uh, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And that's not possible to lead the elect astray in, in any way. Similar to the way in which Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if it's possible, remove this cup. So inevitability of something coming true 
can still be contained even within the phrase, if possible. And that's what Matthew is saying here. And then he says, See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. So what is he saying here? He's saying, don't be naive that that deceptive practices and secret knowledge and amazing events and even large crowds as, as large numbers of people are attracted will characterize the false leaders. And Jesus is calling his disciples to be discerning and spiritually ready. He calls them to not be spiritually naive. So somebody says to you, hey, check it out. I found Jesus in my basement. He's here. He's back. Don't believe him. So, you know, we think, oh, so, so silly, really? Well, that's happened before that people said, Jesus has come again, and here he is, and they go and follow him. So the call is here for discernment. It doesn't mean that you have to study all the cults and know everything that's wrong with every other religion in the world. You just got to know what's right about the gospel. You got to know this book and God's word and, and be a discerning person. You realize, don't you, that you're, you're all theologians, you're all counselors. The question is whether or not you're a good theologian or a good counselor. Every time you open your mouth, you give your opinion. The question is whether it's biblical or satanic. That's the question. And the reality is the kind of advice, the kind of counsel, the kind of thoughts that we have need to be informed with the the body of, of the content of God's word. And Jesus is calling us here to be discerning people, to not be naive. Because spiritual naivete has led many astray. And then finally, I love this. The text tells us that his coming will be clear. Verse 27 For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So he's saying, don't believe people when they say, I found Christ. He says, my coming is going to be obvious. So some guy says to you, I found Jesus at the Verizon Center. He's there. The reality is, sorry, the Verizon Center can't handle Jesus. He's not, he can't be localized in a continent or in a particular church or a location. The coming of Christ is going to reflect the eminence of his glory and it's going to be obvious and big and global. Verse 27, the lightning that comes from the east and the west, what is he saying? He's identifying that his coming will be like a bolt of lightning. You'll be able to see it. You won't miss it even though it's far away. You can see lightning as far as a hundred miles away. It's obvious when a storm is coming. I've got to tell you, one of my least favorite things about living in Indianapolis is the storms that we have. My word, they, they are intense. I remember we visited here, and, and I was staying at the, the church condominium, and there was tornado sirens going off. And I was like, what in the world? I hadn't heard a tornado siren in 10 years. I was like, what, what are you doing a tornado siren? That doesn't sound like a good sign. So I called one of our elders. I said, hey, there's a tornado si- siren going off. Uh, and there's a tornado warning in Hamilton County. Which county do I live in? Right? Where, where am I right now? <laughs> and he said, I, I don't know. I'm like, ah, hang up. And I got call somebody else. Hey. So in Michigan, when storms came across the lake, you knew they were coming. We, we lived four or five miles away from the lake, and you could hear them in the summer. The southwest wind would blow, and you'd be out mowing your lawn, and you'd hear, and you're like, sweet, storm coming. you got 30 minutes. see the dark clouds coming, big announcement of this, this huge storm that's, that's on its way. And Jesus says, my coming will not be missed by the world. Then Jesus says something about vultures. Crazy passage, isn't it? Verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I'm like, what? What is this? With vultures? It's actually, it's, it's really insightful. 
He quotes a Proverbs about that when there's a corpse on the ground, vultures begin to circle. And, you know, we don't really know this because not many vultures, um, at least the animal kind, that live in Indianapolis. But um, <laughs> the... But for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, so we were traveling along uh, 865, and um, it was early in the morning, and I saw these helicopters that were flying around, and they were right over I-65, and I turned the radio on, and there's no cars going north of 65 at all. That's because there's a huge accident. They shut the entire expressway down, and so you have these helicopters that are flying over top, um, reporting on the news that's below. So... For the record, I just called the news media vultures. So there you go. So it's a, so, so that's the idea. Is this, this, these things that are flying around um, tell you that there's something on the ground that's happening. So an obvious sign above is indicating that something is there. Or think of the time if you've seen a, a fire off in the distance and this billow of smoke. And so this, this very obvious sign indicates that something significant is going on. And the point should be very apparent and obvious and it should be sobering that this, the coming of the Son of Man will not be missed by anyone. In fact, listen to Revelation 19. Here's how the Bible describes it. It says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, if I've got my understanding right, that's us. He's coming, we're like, woohoo! Yeah! Let's go! It's gonna be awesome. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron and will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's my king. That's my Lord. And he is coming and the whole world will see him. So that then begs us to ask this question. So now what? So in light of this text, there's many things that I could say about spiritual watchfulness, but Today I just want to focus very specifically on one aspect this morning. Listen, on my heart are those of you who know that if Jesus came back today, hear me, you'd be in serious trouble. The evidence of your life, the hardness of your heart, the secret sins that you use to satisfy the cravings of your soul and your continual refusal to give up the control of your life do more, friend, than just create guilt. Feeling bad, feeling guilty is an early warning sign that there is a holy God who establishes what is right and wrong. So if you're one of those people, you're like, prove to me that God exists. Here's one answer, guilt that you feel in your heart. Where did that come from? 
Who decided what's right and wrong? There's a holy God who says, this is right, this is wrong. And when you do wrong things, the guilt that you feel is an early warning sign. It tells you there's a God and you just messed up. And here, but the good news of the gospel, what the message of the Bible is that God has made a way for human beings to be forgiven of their sin through God taking Christ's death and applying it to sinful people, sinful people like you and me. And it requires, in order for you to have that right relationship with your Creator, that you repent of your sins and receive Christ and acknowledge that your offensive relationship against God requires atonement that you can't pay. It can only come through Jesus. Being out of fellowship with your Creator creates the guilt. So hear me. Guilt, my friend, is a gift. It's a gift. It's a wake-up call for you to realize that there is something worse in life than guilt. It's an early warning sign that there's something worse than guilt. You know what it is? You know what's worse than guilt? Worse than guilt is standing guilty before a holy, righteous God at Judgment Day with no advocate, no mediator, no forgiveness, no atonement, and no defense. Guilt is a gift until Christ returns. And after that, guilt is the basis of your eternal damnation. So the question is just this. Have you taken care of your guilt The question is, are you ready for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to come? Have you taken care of your guilt? That's what Jesus is driving at. And that's why he talks about his second advent. Oh, Father, we thank you that in your great plan and your immutable will you give us these kind of texts to force us to work hard and also to take careful inventory of our souls and father i pray today for people who are here in this building today who have hearts that have are filled with guilt as a warning sign a gift that today could be the day when they turn and turn to Christ. Listen, if you're here today and you've not taken care of your guilt, taken care of your sin, the question I would have for you is this, what are you waiting for and what in the world do you need to hear more than what you've heard today? After our service, there'll be some folks up here at the front who would love to be able to pray with you, to be able to show you what it means to be a follower of Christ, how to be able to take care of your sinful, dark heart. They'll be here. They'll be in worship too. And I would implore you, beg you, anything I could do to get you to see the reality that that guilt is a warning, it's a gift, and it won't last forever. And if you wait too long and Christ comes, it is your eternal death sentence. So God, please, empower faith, open eyes, woo hearts to you today. May today some see you and believe and in believing 
be saved. And now to the King of Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.